This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening, this is Sharmila Ganesan and Sharad Kutin. Tonight, the next Yang Di Pertuan Agong wants his role to have more responsibilities, including direct oversight over the MECC and Petronas. So first we speak to a constitutional lawyer about the role of the Agong and if the constitution allows for a shift in his functions. Later we discuss the question of separation of powers and its impact on the fight against corruption. We want to hear from you. What role should a constitutional monarch play in the leadership of the country? You can call 77332900, tweet us at BFM Radio, send us a voice note or WhatsApp at our mobile number 018789899. This is Inside Story. It is 6.08. So this began um, in an exclusive interview with the Straits Times Singapore. Um, Sultan Ibrahim Sultan Iskandar, the Sultan of Johor, as well as the upcoming Yang Di Pertuan Agong, said that when he's in power, he wants to work towards quashing corruption. And... um, he basically used the the phrase "hunt down uh, corrupt individuals," um, and he wanted to make sure that uh, this was an effective pursuit, right? And he also talked about wanting to be given more responsibilities in his new role, uh, which included the overseeing of the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission or the MACC, as well as Petronas. Now, both of these currently report to the government, and um, so. Sultan Ibrahim essentially said that if the MACC sat under the Agong instead, that the politicians who were in power wouldn't be able to have authority over the commission's actions. He also called for further independence for the judicial appointment process by removing the prime minister's authority when it comes to the selection of judges. Yeah, So, but there are also very specific uh, projects that he liked. Uh, he talked about the high-speed rail um, project that has actually been put aside. Uh, he, wa- he said in an interview with Straits Times Singapore that he wanted it to run through Forest City. Uh, I was in Singapore over the weekend. I did read that article. It, it has this rather dramatic headline, No Puppet King, and and so on and so forth. And the question, of course, is that in that article, uh, they fail to mention uh, the business interests that the uh, that His Royal Highness has in Forest City. And so it's not a complete picture of uh, the man and his uh, ideas about what he can do while he assumes his position. So um, I think, and this comes after, of course, that uh, also well-recorded, uh, uh, sorry, well-telegraphed uh, message coming from the Crown Prince doing his... Um, uh, interview on that podcast, Klaus Kajap, where he also talked about what his father, uh, the Sultan of Selangor, might sorry, Sultan of Johor, might do when he becomes Agong. So all that just creates, uh, you know, all this buzz. There's a lot of buzz now around this incoming Agong. So. For just a quick primer, right, um, the constitution does have very specific um, outlines in terms of what the Yang Di Pertuan Agong's role is. So just to uh, go through them quite quickly. Now, as the head of the executive branch, the Agong has the authority to appoint and dismiss the PM, the cabinet, as well as deputy ministers, public servants and members of the constitutional commissions. Uh, The Agong is also able to select the 44 senators in parliament and has the power to refuse the PM's request request to dissolve parliament or to proclaim an emergency. And when it comes to the judiciary, the Agong's current judicial authority includes appointing attorney generals and judges based on the PM's advice. Now, that's what the that's what Sultan Ibrahim uh, was talking about removing, i.e. the prime minister would be removed from the process. And the Agong can also grant a delay for the sentencing of crimes committed in the three federal territories, uh, i.e. KL, Labuan and Putrajaya, as well as in military court. So we will um, explore this uh, in more detail with our guest in just a bit. We will be joined by Datuk Male Imtia Sarwar, who is a a constitutional lawyer. But we want to hear from you as well. What role should a constitutional monarch play in the leadership of the country? You can call 77332900, tweet us at BFM Radio, send us a voice note or WhatsApp at 018-789-8899. You're listening to Inside Story, BFM 89.9. Be firmly motivated. BFM 89.9.
It is 6.13. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. We are talking about the uh, next Agong and his call for more responsibilities under his role. Uh, this comes from an interview that Sultan Ibrahim gave with The Straits Times. Uh, we would like to hear from you as well. Um, what do you think, uh, what role should a constitutional monarch play in the leadership of the country? You can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us. Joining us on the line is constitutional lawyer Datuk Mali Imtiaz Sarwar. Imtiaz, good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So in this interview with Straits Times Singapore, Sultan Ibrahim Sultan Iskandar outlined several changes that he wants to see. This includes having the MACC and Petronas report directly to him. Before we get into the specifics of this, how common is it for incoming Agongs to call for changes like these? Um, well, I, I don't think I'm qualified to say what's common or not, but um, it's not something that we've seen um, in recent years. Um, a, a broad, a broad uh, policy statement, as it were, uh, on the on the part of the Agong elect. So yeah, I mean that way it's quite uh, exceptional. Imtiaz, do you think is this in, in and, I, and I know you're not necessarily a historian, but uh, do you think this reflects a peculiar style uh, that the Johor Royal House has uh, in the way? Johor is governed that, you know, they have for many years um, played a very active role and been very visible. And it's not always the case, is it? Yeah, I think that's a fair way of, of, of uh, looking at it because, you know, when we do read uh, statements by the Malay rulers, it's usually the Sultan of Johor who has a lot to say and, and is as reported in the media as having said something. You don't see that kind of thing being said uh, very much by the other Malay rulers who tend to keep their comments to official uh, events uh, when they deliver speeches uh, and so on. Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that it, it's it's consistent with what we've seen before. And in many ways, this particular interview, um, it was the prelude to this was actually uh, that appearance by the Tunku Makota of Johor at uh, in the podcast, Kluas Kejap. And mm. since then, there's been this debate on the constitutional limits of the Agong's powers. What is it that we have to understand about this issue of limits? Yeah, so I think um, um, clearly a constitutional monarch is not um, uh, an absolute monarch. So a constitutional monarch operates within the confines of the constitution and, and the limits placed on the monarch by that constitution. Um, and this is especially so in, cases, in, in, in countries where there is a a form of parliamentary or Westminster-style democracy in, in place, where uh, ultimately uh, government is at the hands of the people through their elected representatives in parliament and, of course, in, in the cabinet at, at the federal level. So when you look at it that way, the role of the constitutional monarch is actually quite limited. Uh, notionally, the constitutional monarch is the head of the executive and, and is vested with the executive power but that is, as I said, subject to how the constitution uh, requires that executive power to be um, uh, exercised. And I think in the Malaysian setting, what I think brings it very clearly uh, into, into, into stark relief is the provision of the constitution, which requires uh, His Majesty, the, the King, to act in accordance with the advice of cabinet uh, in all functions other than where he is expressly vested with the discretion by the constitution. And, and those discretionary roles are quite uh, limited. So for instance, uh, the appointment of the prime minister. Now that is absolutely at, at the uh, His Majesty's discretion, the Agong. However, even there, there is a qualifier in that the person who is perceived as being able to uh, command the confidence of the majority uh, must be appointed. Uh, he, uh, the king has um, uh, discretion when it comes to pardons, although that is to be exercised in accordance with the provisions on uh, on the pardons board of the uh, federation. Um, and then, so far as the uh, rest, the, the, the royal um, prerogatives and the um, status of the rulers, um, I think those are three of the obvious uh, areas of of discretion that I can recall. The rest of it. The king has to act on advice, um, and uh, at least as per the constitution, the king is not put in any position where he can act uh, contrary to that advice. 
Yeah, uh, Imtiaz, I wanted to follow up on that question of constraint, yeah. you know, the whether uh, uh, there are also constraints that come from convention. So we saw in the case of the Johor State election, the the head of Barisan National that won the election wasn't chosen as the Mantri Basar, you know, and that in some ways flies in the face of convention. How does convention play a role in constraining or guiding the monarch in terms of his actions? Yeah. So in, in the Malaysian setting, um, because we have a written constitution, unlike the UK, which does not have one, and uh, thus convention is extremely important. In in the Malaysian setting, convention actually takes, um, it's, it's not something that we look at uh, with any you know frequency of, of I, I can't recall the last time we actually had to look at convention. I mean, there's, and, and we should be clear that one of the reasons why uh, the constitution doesn't spell things out so clearly is because there's an expectation that there will be some backroom discussions about how things should be between the ruler at the state or the or the agong at the federal level with the um, incoming uh, prime minister or the person that is wanting to be prime minister, et cetera, et cetera. So there is, there is room for that sort of discussion behind closed doors. Um, and to the extent that those discussions shape outcomes, yeah, that, that's something that I think there's, there's space for and room for. Uh, but beyond that, I think ultimately the expectation is that if the government or if the if the a particular political party has has uh, achieved majority and is in a clear position to demonstrate that not only do they have command of the majority but will continue to have command of the majority, then I don't think there's very much room to actually uh, intervene on the part of the ruler or, or His Majesty the King. Now, the Johor situation was a bit um, fluid, I would say, because the, the factual circumstance allowed for that intervention. So one can't necessarily say that the, the ruler acted wrongly there or acted in defiance of convention because there was an opening and, and he took it and um, there was no pushback, as it were. And, and that, I think, signaled a willingness. Now, so if you're, if you're writing a constitutional law textbook, you would say, no, this is not how it's supposed to happen. But constitutional law in practice is a very different thing, um, and it's living, um, and, and it, it adapts or it responds to the dynamics of a given situation. I think that's the best I can say on that. So if we go back to this um, this call by the by the Sultan to uh, expand the responsibilities that he would hold, how much room is there within the constitution for him to call for amendments like these when it comes to how governance is structured? Well, it, it, there's no explicit provision in the constitution which allows for it. But if that if that um, if there was a discussion, let's say between the, the, the Agong and the uh, Prime Minister of the day, in which certain policy indications were given, and the government of the day felt that that was, you know, something that was for the best interest of all the, the nation. I mean, I, good ideas can come from anyone, uh, including the rulers. Um, and so in that case, yes, I suppose there would be there would be room for that, but it would ultimately have to be uh, a move initiated by the government of the day. And I think if you want to expand the role of the uh, the Agong, then you would need a constitutional amendment, which is you know an altogether different thing. And and as we've seen before, is not is not an easy process. Um, where the role of the Agong is concerned, it would also require the involvement of the Conference of Rulers. Um, who have a say on matters pertaining to um, the, the royalty, uh, Malays, and the religion of Islam. Uh, so, yeah, definitely the conference of rules would have to be consulted and they would have to agree. And then you'd have to get two thirds two, two majority in parliament for it to happen. So it's not it's not simply a case of, um, of uh, snapping the fingers uh, and expecting it to happen. It, it, it can't. Under the constitution, it won't happen like that. Now, before we get into some specific recommendations that His Royal Highness outlined in the Straits Times Singapore interview, um, he did say something interesting. He said that you know he was answerable to the riot uh, over the twenty, uh, sorry, two hundred twenty-two members of Parliament, which, mm. in some sense, I think sounds correct uh, rhetorically at least. But considering that royals as a whole are not constrained uh, from involvement in business. Is there always a potential for a conflict of interest? Well, well I think, Sharad, there's two, two things in what you've just asked. That, I mean, the first thing is this question of accountability. Um, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a concept. I mean, philosophically, yes, one could say that the, um, 
the Agong as well as the Malay rulers are accountable to their to their citizenry. But as a matter of law, they're not, um, other than in the very, very limited way in which the constitution allows for it. So, for example, um, a ruler uh, cannot be sued or prosecuted in any court other than the special court. And even then, it has to be with the consent of the attorney general. Um, uh, we've got uh, sedition laws which make any constructive discussion somewhat um, somewhat something of a dangerous venture, <laughs> as we've seen in the past. Um, so I, I can't really agree that there is in in practice a, a measure of accountability in that sense. But it's it's welcoming, I think, a statement to the effect that the incoming Agong feels that he is accountable to the to the people of Malaysia. That's that's very welcome. But in reality, um, uh, it's not something that can be easily uh, effected in practice. So yes, going back to what I said earlier, if, if His Majesty thinks that there are ideas that should be communicated with some measure of firmness or whatever to the government of the day, perhaps things that only can be said by His Majesty behind closed doors, well, if it's for the betterment of the country, well and good. Now, moving to the second part about conflicts of interest and business, yes, I don't think there's any restriction on, on the royals being involved in business. Um, and if if... And I, I say this is a big if, and it's a big hypothetical. Um, in, in the in the hypothetical hypothetical situation of say a, a, a decree of some form being issued that a particular uh, uh, project or development has to happen in a particular way that might be in the peculiar financial interest of the particular ruler, then yes, on the face of it, that doesn't look very good, um, and it, it it is something that you could in law say to be a conflict. And it's not something that I think the um, that the government of the day would be in a position to do, if um, if we go by what standards of conduct and ethics, etc., expected of a government um, of of this country. So yes, the potential for conflict is there. So um, and this is why when when you see um, um, the discussions surrounding this sort of subject, usually you'll have the uh, the Agong not being involved in anything um, uh, directly. Uh, and that's because as the head of the state, uh, as the head of the executive, um, uh, you cannot allow that institution to be seen as being uh, in one way or the other um, uh, involved and therefore undermined in its standing. I, again, I say this with the greatest respect and you know, it's all hypothetical. So... Sultan Ibrahim has also called for a more independent judicial appointment process by excluding uh, the executive, specifically the PM, from the process. What mm. are the implications of such a suggestion? Well, I think that's a very positive suggestion. Um, um, it's something that we've, I mean, the bar for quite a number of years has been sort of pushing. Uh, with, well, the idea was first mooted when the Judicial Appointments Commission uh, was suggested, and like in the UK, the the Prime Minister is essentially reduced to merely being the conduit uh, of of the recommendation by the Council, uh, the sorry, the Appointments Commission to the to the monarch. Whereas here, um, the 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 way the law is structured, um, the Judicial Appointments Commission Act leaves it somewhat open ended whether the Prime Minister can ignore the recommendations or override recommendations or direct more recommendations to be given. And that's something that has, I think, been judicially acknowledged in at least one or two decisions as being problematic because it seems that the process is more lip service than anything else. I, I say this again with respect to the JAC, um, and I do know that the JAC is trying very hard to ensure that it is doing what it's supposed to be doing, uh, at least uh, as, as, a, as a commission of that form. But... It, it, there are questions because of the way the act is structured. So what would be good is to say, well, the the JAC would recommend or the Chief Justice recommends directly after after being briefed by the Judicial Appointments Commission, direct recommendation to His Majesty. Um, and the, His Majesty would then uh, defer to that recommendation and appoint accordingly. So that would ensure that there's no political uh, involvement in the choice of judges. Uh, and and the and the and the advantage of that is evident, right? You wouldn't want judges being appointed because of their politics. So yeah, so I think that's a very welcome suggestion. It has to be, of course, implemented in a way that that is constitutional. But yeah, I think I think that should be looked at. 
Imtiaz, we have just about a minute left. What would oh, you sorry. like to leave us with? Yeah, I, I think I think we should look at um, uh, at change in as positive a way as we can, and um, you know, uh, and I think it's going to be a very interesting um, uh, few years uh, when the when the new Agong comes in, and one hopes that all of this kind of discussion will lead to you know more constructive uh, idea of how things should evolve forward, and then and I hope that happens. Imtiaz, thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks thank you for having me. Yeah. That was constitutional lawyer Datuk Malik Imtiaz Sarwar um, weighing in on the role of the constitutional monarch. Uh, let us know, what role do you think um, a constitutional monarch should play in the leadership of our country? You can call 77332900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Bring forth Moolah, BFM 89.9. It's 6.38. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. We are talking about the uh, incoming Agung, Sultan Ibrahim of Johor, um, and his call for more responsibilities to be given to the role of Agung, including having the MACC and Petronas reporting directly to him. Um, And so we are asking you, what role should a constitutional monarch play in the leadership of the country? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Now, joining us on the line is Sudagaran Stanley, Deputy CEO of the Centre to Combat Corruption and Cronyism, or C four. Sudagaran, good to have you with us. Hi, good evening, Sharad and um, Shamila. Thank you for having me on air as well. So the Sultan of Johor has vowed to eradicate corruption in Malaysia once he's installed as the next Agong. Let's get into it. Is it the duty of the Agong to root out corruption? Does the constitution grant the Agong any specific powers in this regard? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I must um, uh, commend the Agong for the future, I mean, the incoming Agong for making such a brave and bold statement. Uh, He's always been known uh, to making such open statements. Uh, and calling out for the winning of corruption in this country. But I think the, the issue here that we need to, to look at is the mere fact that the Agom, um, who's calling for uh, uh, the, the process of uh, reporting of MACC to be under him, essentially means that there's a problem in the system, right? There is an issue with the, with the current setup of the MACC, uh, where people have actually lost trust in the institution, uh, the institution itself becoming engulfed with many corruption issues and so on, etc. Uh, so that's the main issue here. But in terms of the powers of the Agong uh, in actually uh, wanting to oversee uh, the MACC, I think that becomes a, a problem uh, because we are a constitutional monarch uh, where the monarch actually derives their powers from the federal constitution. Uh, and so the, the, the current setup of the constitution does not give uh, the Agong per se you know, to look after uh, such institutions or to have uh, any administrative power over such an institution. So I think we need to refer back to the federal constitution. We want to discuss this because that's where the powers of the Agong actually are derived from. Yeah, in fact, Sudaran, I think what I understand is that over the years, unhappiness about the MACC and the particular reporting structures that it is uh, you know, uh, bound by has been the call has been, in fact, to make it answerable to Parliament. More people, more stakeholders opening up that whole process, right, rather than going the way of concentrating again in the hands of one person uh, the role of scrutiny. I mean, how do we, which is the better route to take? Absolutely right, Sharad. I think when we talk about accountability, there can be no one person that should be responsible for this, right? Because be whoever, Prime Minister, the monarch or anyone else, what if this person um, himself then becomes, uh, you know, uh, accused of uh, corrupt behaviours and so on? Then what, what does the system do? So this is why we need to have a system of check and balance where everyone is holding each other accountable here, right? Uh, and the system needs to be free from political interference. We've got to put that safeguard in. So in, in 2015, we've already drafted a memorandum um, it was by the Bar Council, C4, and a few other uh, anti-corruption NGOs in this country. And we submitted that uh, memorandum to uh, the minister at that time, Paul Lowe, uh, laying out some of our recommendations. And essentially what we were calling for is for an um, independent constitutional commission to be established, uh, termed as uh, the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission. And this uh, commission will look after 
the investigative arm, which is now the MACC, uh, and they will be known as the Anti-Corruption Agency. And then, uh, so how? So who are these people who are made up of the commission? So the commission are commissioners that are appointed by a special parliamentary select committee made up of op opposition members uh, and members from the lower and upper house. Uh, and this IACC will have to report to parliament, submit their, their findings, and, and they will be able to uh, be asked questions by the parliamentary select committee uh, on, on, on certain issues and so on. So that's, the idea here is that there is a check and balance mechanism. So the, while they are also in constitutional uh, commission, but they also have to report back into parliament of their findings and any other issues and so on. So that was one of the, the, the recommendations that we have given the government. Uh, and in fact, we, has, we also call for the commissioners uh, of uh, this commission, where 40% of the commissioners should actually may, be made up of civil society uh, people, you know, um, people who are experts in the field, who have experience on the ground, uh, and will be able to also, uh, you know, um, be free from any political biasness and, and so on. Uh, uh, so it's been more than what five nine years since the the report was submitted. Uh, we have already had a couple of change of government, and each time the government comes in, they promise us with reforms to the MECC. But until today, very sadly, uh, Sharad, uh, we still see the MECC uh, in its current form, which has completely lost the trust of the people, and um, uh, and it's very sad for the country actually. So this suggestion then that um, it should sit under the Agung, should report to the Agung, in fact, instead of the government, um, what is the monarch's role in preserving the independence of these institutions? What can the Agung do to help maintain this? You see, under the federal constitution, the Agung, uh, not only in regards to the appointment of uh, the MACC commissioner, but various other uh, government institutions, the Agong acts on the advice of the Prime Minister. You know, Article 40 very clearly states out that, uh, you know, in the exercise of the functions of the Agong, uh, he, he acts in accordance with the advice of the Cabinet uh, or the Prime Minister in, in conducting his, um, uh, his duties. Uh, and this also extends to the appointment of all those chief commissioners in the various different uh, uh, institutions. So that's, and that's where it, it ends, you know, the, the, his power basically is about in the appointment process of these institutions. Uh, but uh, to, to get the commission to report to the Bona uh, will, actually, will actually mean that the Royal Institution is actually getting involved in the administration, which I don't, which I think, which is also not safe um, for the institution because we need to also safeguard the sanctity of the Royal Institution. When the institution starts to get involved in the administrative matters, uh, then they actually open up uh, the room for being criticized and being, uh, uh, you know, uh, being told that, uh, that they are having certain political agendas and motives. We, we don't want all of that to happen. So this is why it's very important for the monarchy to be detached from the administrative part. Let the executive uh, uh, run the job. Uh, and we have parliament there, 222 parliamentarians that were chosen by Malaysians based on what ideologies and directions of the country they wanted to advance. Um, and that's how a parliamentary system operates, right? There's, there's limitations uh, in terms of uh, how the monarch can... Um, the, within the federal constitution itself, of course, there are differences uh, in terms of the powers of the Agong. There are some matters where the Agong only acts on the advice of the prime minister, but there are some where he has no powers um, over Islamic religion, uh, for example, or even in the appointment of prime minister, for example, where he has more powers than the others. Uh, so we've got to go back again to the federal constitution and to uh, safeguard the constitution and the, the democracy uh, practice in this country. Now, of course, the, uh, His Royal Highness, the Sultan of Johor, um, has many thoughts, you know, um, and he one of the things that he said was that, you know, political instability is triggered by, quote, uh, saboteurs who contributed millions uh, before the elections, but having lost, lose opportunities to receive government contracts. I mean, his analysis is what is the question now. Is, it, is there any truth to what he's saying? And if so, does the solution ha lie in the hands of the monarch or in reforming political financing, for instance? Very, very true, uh, Sharad. You know, in fact, he made a, a statement. I read the statement that he made and he said that people contribute hundreds of millions before election. And how do you expect them to pay back? It's by giving them major projects. And this is what exactly is happening today in this country, Sharad. You know, um, there are major pol uh, businesses in this country who are providing political finance to political parties. 
and expect laws to be amended to favor their businesses or projects to be given to favor their their their, their income. Uh, and this is a major problem, and this is why we've been calling for the um, Political Financing Act to be uh, to be uh, a table in Parliament. Uh, but I must tell you that these political financing reforms, to my view, I think is at, at one of the last priorities of the current government. But they speak about, yeah, they're having consultation, they want to do this. But from the true spirit of intention, there seem not to be any real political will to push forward this political financing law. So, and, and it doesn't only end there, uh, Sharad, you know, when we're talking about reforms, I mean, the, the, the Royal Highness spoke about many issues of corruption. And this does not only tie down to the MACC, but see, MACC, yes, we've got to reform them, we've got to reform the commissioner, the structure, and so on, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but in tandemly, we've got to make sure that other reforms also take place. For example, you know, uh, while we have reformed the MACC, uh, we've also got to reform the separation of powers between the AG and the public prosecutor. Because the MACC can go around investigating and catching all those uh, people, but then the ultimate decision to charge or not to charge lies within the public prosecutor's office. And if you have seen how uh, detrimental that can be in the case of Zahid and so on, when the charges were withdrawn, uh, and even in different different uh, cases in this country. Uh, and then what about uh, whistleblower protection? The existing whistleblower mechanism in this country is very weak. People don't feel safe to come forward to blow the whistle. We've called for reform. We've had many consultations with the government. In fact, they were supposed to table the bill in the last sitting a couple of weeks ago in November. But um, very sadly, again, that was postponed, you know. And this is, we're talking about the consultation sessions occurring already since 2018 with the first uh, stint of Pakatan Harapan government coming into power. Right. And here we are down, you know, five years down the road. And we're still talking about, you know, the bill's not being tabled, the reform's still being not carried out, they're still researching, researching, and I don't know for what, you know. Right. I want to bring us back to the, the Sultan of Johor, though, and in his ideas, right, his analysis. Because one of the issues that has come up is actually the uh, involvement of royal houses and individuals in businesses themselves, right? So you talk on one hand about protecting the royal institution from any kind of public pressure or accusation or bias and such. But then we also have the fact, I mean, it's not illegal, that royals are involved in businesses. And the Sultan of Johor is a major player in a business in the country. So how do we square that problem? Very true. And this is why also if you talk about having the MACC report uh, to the monarch may also cause a problem, right? Because the, 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 the monarchs themselves are involved in business. And as you say, it's not illegal. Uh, definitely it's not illegal. But it raises a, an issue of conflict of interest, right? When um, uh, the monarch who have a lot of white state powers within their states, uh, but when they are involved in businesses, then uh, could um, issues of conflict of interest actually arise in some of the decisions uh, or some of the advice they actually give to the state legislatures. Um, I mean, the, one of the very clear examples is in regards to the HSR line, with the article that I read in Malaysia Kini a couple of days ago, where the Sultan actually wanted the um, uh, the line of the HSR to go through the Faro City project in which uh, he's believed to have a, a stake in. I mean, good intentions, yeah, very good intentions. He wants to revive the project. He wants business for the state of Johor. But could it possibly be a conflict of interest? That's a, a, a real issue, right? And I think the, the, this needs to be addressed as well, right? So how do we draw the line? We have also a check and balance mechanism uh, to ensure that there's transparency in the entire process, right? Uh, who are the beneficiaries of this project? Uh, how much are they earning? What are their, their, their concerns? What are their interests in the particular project? Uh, there needs to be more transparency across, I think, the uh, the, the involvement of uh, royalty or the monarch uh, within the business world. So since uh, this interview as well as the Crown Prince's interview um, have come out, there has been uh, some amount of concern about the issue of separation of powers within our political system. Where do you think these can be enhanced to combat corruption? Um, I think uh, I, I would like to go back also to, um, I mean, the three branches of the separation of powers. We talk about the legislature, the judiciary, uh, and the executive. So that's a very well-defined concept when we talk about the separation of powers, right? But, but within it, uh, the, 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 the process of uh, the, the independence of the institutions within the country, that needs to be announced. Because at current state, the institutions in the country uh, have very much political interference. Um, uh, the judiciary being an example, and I think the uh, Sultan rightfully also brought up the issue of the judiciary, the appointment of the judiciary process. Uh, 
where the Prime Minister actually has a say or a control over five person who actually is uh, appointed into the Judicial Appointments Com uh, Commission. So in essence, it actually means that he has control and influence over the decisions that comes out of the judiciary. Um, and so this needs to be uh, reformed. The way judges are appointed needs to be reformed. The government needs to take its hands off in the appointment process, uh, where there's a complete set of overall of the, in terms of the appointment process, independent uh, processes put in place uh, and uh, to ensure that the judiciary is free, uh, free from any political interference. But that's only one, the judiciary. Then we have the MACC, of course. Uh, we've got the police, for example, and many other institutions that we at C4 have been calling up uh, that it needs to be, the key here is that where the institutions need to be independent uh, in terms of the appointment process and even in the reporting process where they actually report directly not to a single person. Because in many of the instances, the, the, these institutions report to the Prime Minister, you know. Even Petronas, for example, also reports to the Prime Minister. Uh, Prime Minister has a very strong hand in Petronas when, when the uh, Sultan was talking about Petronas. Uh, but we want them to be able to report, or the institutions, I mean, to be able to report to parliament, to select committees, uh, to enhance better accountability mechanisms and separation of powers within the current system. Sudhagran, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. That was Sudhagran Stanley, Deputy CEO of the Centre to Combat Corruption and Cronyism, weighing in on um, calls by the um, the next Agong, that more responsibility should be given uh, to his role, including overseeing Petronas, MACC. So we want to hear from you. What role should a constitutional monarch play in the leadership of the country? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Business, finance and music. BFM 89.9. It is 7.07. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. And just a quick recap, we are talking about the next Agong, who is, of course, the Sultan of Johor, Sultan Ibrahim Sultan Iskandar, and an interview that he gave uh, to the Straits Times Singapore, where he talked about wanting to, well, a couple of things, really. He talked about wanting to hunt down um, and eradicate corruption, uh, but he also um, called for a uh, widening of his responsibilities including overseeing the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission or MACC and Petronas. Um, he also called for independence for judicial appointments uh, by removing the Prime Minister's authority to select judges. So a number of interesting things, which all also has led to questions about um, what exactly the constitution allows for when it comes to the role of the Agong, as well as um, then where does the separation of powers and interests lie? So we want to hear from you. What role should a constitution, constitutional monarch play in the leadership of the country? You can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us. Um, let's start with this that has come in from DMA, who says, Our Agong should ensure MPs who behave inappropriately in Parliament are summoned to meet him to promise not to repeat such acts and apologise. Then the Agong can decide if the MP should apologise to the Rakyat as well. I hope the Agong will be able to ensure that the prestige of our August House is never tainted with any kind of mockery. Yeah, Jimmy, I understand the, a certain appeal, I think, that comes from the, the, the specific uh, charisma of this individual, the Sultan of Johor. He's very charismatic. He has ideas. He, he has never shrunk from, you know, pub, uh, making very public his views on what is happening in the country. But I think uh, we have to separate, I mean, personally, I think we need to separate between the style of certain individuals and the function that uh, that comes with certain roles, right? So when I read this, I'm reading, oh, it's actually the Speaker who hmm. should be doing this. If MPs act inappropriately in Parliament, it's the Speaker's role. And so not to confuse uh, the, um, the, uh, the seriousness or the strictness or the... Um, the willingness to assert themselves that this particular individual, the Sultan of, Slang, sorry, Slaku, Sla, uh, Sultan of Johor has, with the role that you seek and the problem that you seek to be resolved, right? I mean, there is a difference between style and function, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And I also think that do we really want our, our Agong to have to, um, you know, deal with 
inappropriate behavior of our MPs in Parliament day to day. I mean, this this would become a full time endeavor, um, and that's exactly what the Speaker's role is, as you pointed out. Um, and that's often done in Parliament. You know, there there are specific uh, ways in which uh, the Speaker can censure MPs. There are rules that they need to follow. So. I agree that that I think while um, while this is clearly also I think rooted in uh, this notion of the Sultan of Johor in particular as being someone who's outspoken and who has a lot of opinions in terms of decorum and behavior and all of this that there is there are particular people whose jobs already is to keep um, well, keep Parliament to the level it should be operating at. Um, Okay, we have an anonymous listener who says, no, no, and no. One of the things that will make me miss Tun M. Yeah, so Anon, I, I do believe that, in fact, you know, in these discussions we've had over the last couple of weeks following, you know, the Crown Prince of Johor's interview in Klaus Kajap and now the, the Sultan, His Royal Highness's um, interview in the Straits Times Singapore, a discussion about constitutional limits, right? And what's changed in the feel of the country when it comes to the assertion uh, that certain royal houses and personages have uh, over the last and in recent times. So I think for those people who feel uh, concerned that the uh, constitutional monarchy itself as an institution is under threat uh, when we have two assertive individuals from royal houses, they, they always turn to Tunem. They always talk about Tunem because they see in Tunem, again, it's a question of style and a question. And also, I think, Shamila, if you remember back, right, to the days when, um, and I think this in impacted the, the royal house in Johor in particular, a very strong amno. And Amno that was solid support in in the Malay population and the larger country actually in Mathi had broad based support. They were unassailable. The problem has been for Amno and for a lot of Malay based parties is that their the support has weakened. And so a lot of uh, other contenders for that influence, for that charisma, have come into play. And I think, uh, you know, and that's what we're seeing sometimes in the assertiveness of certain royal houses and individuals um, over the last decade or so. And I, and I think actually um, uh, a turning to uh, uh, the royal families as a, perhaps a, a beacon that they can gather around. I know that in particular states, I mean, I, I'm a, I've said this before, I'm a kale person. And so I don't actually have um, a royal family as such to to have grown up with and around. Um, but I know that in particular states, there this notion of a loyalty to the to their monarch is is a big deal. And I think it also does speak to, as you were saying, um, as a. With the lack of leadership, um, perhaps this is a, a particular kind of leadership that people do tend to gravitate towards. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think the. Um the decline in the respect that people have had for politicians mm. has, in fact, created a vacuum, right? And then people, and in fact, politicians themselves constantly appeal to, uh, you know, royal houses and, and, and sultans in order to resolve their political problems. But I think we all have to remember the kind of genesis of Malaysia as a country, you know, as a federation of federations. Uh, the, if you think about it, if Singapore was part of the Federation of Malaysia, only one out of four of those territories, of founding territories, would have had a system of monarchy, right? Only one. Sarawak doesn't have one. Uh, I mean, the Raja Brook, the Brooks uh, aside, Sabah doesn't have one. Singapore certainly didn't have one. And then, and then, if you look at even Malaya itself, how many states of Malaya, constituent parts of the Fed, uh, Federation of Malaya, had monarchs? Right? Yes, yes. Uh, and then, and so you don't. Penang doesn't have one. Mm. Malacca doesn't have one. So, so I think that we have to remember. The genesis, the Agong in particular, I guess, is very new. And unlike the ancient nature of, say, Johor, ancient nature of Kedah as as, uh, as royal houses, the Agong is a modern institution, it's a post-war institution that it was developed for the Federation. Keep your thoughts coming. We are asking you, what role should a constitutional monarch play in the leadership of the country? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Be free minded. BFM 89.9. It's 7.15. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. We're talking about the 
role and responsibilities of the Agung. Um, as the incoming Agung, the Sultan of Johor, has called for a widening of his um, his responsibilities, including having MACC and Petronas report directly to him. So we want to hear from you. What role should a constitutional monarch play in the leadership of the country? You can call us. You can send us a voice note. You can WhatsApp us. You can tweet us. Um, let's start with a voice note. This is Aaron. Good evening, BFM. So personally, I would suggest and agree with the idea to widen up the responsibility of our honourable the King of Malaysia, uh, because I would say uh, our King, which is our Agong, will be able to provide a check and balance to make sure our government, federal government, will not hold that much of power because. Uh, I'm not familiar with our national constitution, but to my understanding, the federal government usually held an absolute power when it comes to appointing judges, appointing the the uh, the head of MSCC, as well as you know all the important roles in federal government. So widen up the responsibility for our Agong is a good idea. For example, our Agong did mention about uh, letting him to select the leader, the head of MSCC, which is a good idea because he can set the person that he thinks has the integrity so that the MSCC can hunt down corruption without a fear of reporting to their previous boss like to PM. I mean, there won't be any much political interference if the MSCC chief is being appointed directly to from the Agong. This is my thoughts. Thank you. Aaron, thank you. Um, I think you brought up some really interesting points there. So I I think that in theory, the idea of an independent MACC is actually a good one. Um, but where I sort of, where that becomes a sticking point for me is this notion of concentration of power in any <coughs> one individual, right? Now, whichever whichever individual we're talking about, I think that we do need to think about what it means when we say that these institutions of checks and balances stops at one person. I think that becomes a little complicated. I also think that our constitution actually has... Um, has been put in place quite mindfully and thoughtfully in terms of um, to address exactly that, what we want to do when it means, um, sorry, how we want to approach this notion of a monarch, but within a democratic institution. Yeah, so Aaron, I think I understand your sentiment. Uh, and I think this uh, feeling that uh, the system is, isn't adequate. And so it, there needs to be some fix, right? So the question is whether you go towards a more popular fix. I mean, you go towards the many parliament as an assembly to provide those checks and balances, or you go uh, away from the prime minister, but now to the monarch. The only problem, Aaron, I see, um, you know, arising from this is that if we start making the monarch responsible for very specific decisions, then if something goes wrong with that appointment, then it actually rebounds on the monarch. And so the question then becomes, do we want the monarch, which is supposed, who's supposed to be a symbol of the country, right? A unifying symbol that we all kind of look to, uh, for, especially in, in times of crisis, and not a political player. But once you give the monarch responsibilities of this, of this sort, they become a player. And therefore, they can very quickly become subject for public rancor mm. and disagreement and blame and, and shame and all that kind of stuff that we happily put on our political leaders because we elect them. So that's exactly the point that... Uh JLLC Fish is making. Um, so they say the Agung's role should be made clear. He acts as a check and balance, not executive powers because not voted for by the Rakyat. Yeah, so there's this whole question of the democratic temper, isn't it, uh, Shamila? I mean, different countries uh, express it differently, but I think Malaysians, are pretty much most of us want democracy as a kind of guiding principle, not just in terms of choosing our government, but in terms of how government actually operates, right? And so once you have somebody who's unaccountable, not that there aren't unaccountable stakeholders, like say judges, judges' mm. um, accountability is not a popular one, right? We don't vote for judges. But uh, but uh, but all in all, everything should be balanced up. And so the question is, um, you know, do we want to give executive powers to the monarchy when in fact it then 
potentially drags them into conflict with other players within the political field. S.W. Jung says the monarch should play um, the role of a political neutral mediator and to monitor and govern the Royal Commission of Inquiry. I think that actually is a very fair ask. Yeah, so I think we, we know, we remember the time in which uh, the President Agong, in fact, uh, during the Muhyiddin administration, had a meet, special meeting of the Conference of Rulers to decide on a submission being made by the Muhyiddin administration for a declaration of emergency. Yes, yes. Right? So the, the, his... Yeah, well, I thought you were going to refer to something very long ago. It feels like no, it. But it's, no, but it's just it recent, recent, right? Yes. And, you know, what's interesting is that he didn't really have to do that, but he had a. I mean, for him, that was his consultative group, and uh, and in in the first instance, at least he denied the Muhyiddin administration uh, this request for a, a declaration of emergency. Right, the the, uh, the darurat kesehatan, as uh, Muhyiddin liked to call it. So um, we'd see there, uh, uh, you know, working out of some of these checks and balances. And in fact, during the Muhyiddin administration, we also saw other kinds of conflict. Yes, uh, actually, with the royal that houses. that era, I remember. Um, for a lot of people became a sort of education in terms of um, where the Agong can and does choose to act and how that can shape the the political uh, decisions that are then made. Um, and also seeing that kind of um, not open conflict necessarily, but perhaps um, a curtailing of the power of politicians in deciding what happens and what doesn't. Yeah, so that was, I think, um, like you said, a very recent uh, example of us all learning collectively about the, the value of our royal institutions, especially in a time of crisis. So, uh, but the question is, do we want to go further and how far do we go without actually um, pushing the, the train as it were off the tracks, right? Because the moment you give executive powers, we're already dealing with a, um, an undermining of the constitutional nature of the constitutional monarchy system. Well, anonymous listener is saying we mustn't forget our democratic element, um, which I think is, is exactly that balance between um, the notion of having a monarch and also having a democratic system in place. So Dennis says the constitutional law must be studied thoroughly so that nobody can usurp its legitimacy and majesty. The Agong definitely has powers, but it must be respected within the constitution. It would be a sad day if just um, just in the quest to rein in corruption and abuse of authority, we end up disregarding the constitution. Um, I like the Agong's zeal and interest, but it must be done constitutionally. Yeah, so, you know, I think that I, I, there, there's some um, go-to books for me. Ampun Tuanku by Zaid Ibrahim is, is an excellent essay on the question of how do we protect the institution, um, you know, against uh, people who want to change its nature, right? What are the things that are, what are the challenges for the institution? Uh, Said Hussein Ali also has written a book, uh, he's titled The Malay Rulers, Regression and Reform. So there actually been some, I think, uh, some serious thinking that's gone behind uh, how do we make this system last and how do we protect its interests by everybody agreeing to the rules of the game and we don't change those rules willy-nilly. It's always good to end a show on book recommendations, I think. I, I think so too. Keep your thoughts coming. We are asking you, what role should a constitutional monarch play in the leadership of the country? You can call 77332900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.